0: Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Roswell Community Church. My name is Matt, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and it is great to be with you this morning. Um, looks like I'm, I'm giving you feedback. You can give me feedback if you'd like during the sermon, just as a give and take. I am going to the bathroom to read. Those are the final words that Elvis Presley said to his fiancée, what was her name again? Ginger Alden, on the night of his death in 1977. I was going to tell you what he's reading, but I think I'm just going to leave that to you all to go find out. Don't get on your phones to pretend you're doing a good report ballot and look it up. I know you, I know what you're doing. So, what would your last words be? What might your last words be? Do you ever think about that? Like, what are the last things you're going to be able to communicate, getting to say to people that you love or maybe, well, you don't know? What do you want on your tombstone? Those kinds of like large-scale questions about who we are and what do we want to leave behind? What do we want to declare? Which is precisely what we have in the last words of the Apostle Paul in the book of Second Timothy. 2 Timothy are the final, is the final letter that the Apostle Paul, who's written a large portion of the, of the New Testament, declares to his apostle, his disciple, Timothy, one who's followed him and been with him for many, many years. He's saying these final words, and they matter. These are his last words, and they are better than, I am going to the bathroom. So the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the reality of of Paul telling to Timothy, listen, Timothy, like there's this good deposit of the gospel that you need to guard. And we talked about how do we guard that. And last week we talked about the fact that the, that the gospel is something that's not just ours, but it's actually given away and that we are to be people, who, we are disciples who, who make disciples. And this morning we're going to talk about what Paul talks about, which is what it looks like to be a faithful follower, what a faithful follower looks like. So we're going to jump in in verse 1 and kind of set the tone, set the scope. It says in verse 1 of chapter 3, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. During these times of difficulty, which, by the way, it was true for Paul, clearly, that he's in prison, true for the church around the, the world at that time, are the same that are true today. Now, some of us may think, okay, well, it's really hard now. But no, 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 what Paul's talking about is true for Timothy, and it's, it's true for us today. There are days of difficulty And I think out of this passage, what I see is there emerges really three different particular groups that participate, that engage, or maybe don't engage in the reality of these difficult times. Two of them come, I believe, straight out of the text, and one of them is a little bit more oblique. So the first two are pretty straightforward, and that's the wicked people. The second one is the faithful follower. So let's look at the wicked people. Don't you want to do that this morning? Let's look at some wicked people. Paul has no qualms. Paul's a list guy. If you've read the New Testament, you've read Paul. Paul loves lists, but this one is like no other list. He finds himself, in particular in this time, talking about the people will be. What's gonna make these times difficult? Well, he says, people are going to be, people will be, and he describes this wicked conduct. This is what he says in verse two through four. He says, for people will be lovers of self. You ready? Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, Parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now what's interesting in these three verses, there are 19 different descriptors, which again wins the, wins the, 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 um, the award for Paul, in which he paints a picture of what basically wickedness looks like. What evil looks like in people. Now, I'm not going to break down all 19 of these, so it's going to be all right. But I do want to make just two observations in particular. The first one is actually uh, drawn from some of my reading from John Stott, and I thought this was really fascinating. Is that this is that the list begins and ends with love. Begins and ends with love. Well, begins with the presence of a particular kind of love and the absence of another kind of love. It says in verse two, for people will be lovers of self. And at the end of verse four, it says, and not lovers of God. As a matter of fact, four of the 19 of these descriptors have some form of the the loving piece to it. There is this affection, this desire, that's part of what it means to follow or not follow God. What this implies is that at the the root, what's broken and what's distorted about these people is that their love is falsely oriented. Now, instead of being first and foremost lovers of God, they are instead lovers of themselves, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasure. But they're lovers. You are what you love. I don't think anyone says it better than 19th century Scottish theologian Thomas Chalmers in his phenomenal writing on the expulsive power of a new affection as he talks about the the work of how affection works and how it works and why it matters. So listen to what he says. He says, It is seldom that any of our bad habits or flaws disappear by a mere process of natural extinction. They don't just go away. At least it is very seldom that this is done by the instrumentality of reason or by the force of mental determination. But what cannot be destroyed, he says, may be dispossessed. And one taste may be made to give away to another and to lose its power entirely as the reigning affection of the mind. Oh, good news. He says, okay, the boy... who uh, Who ceases at length to be a slave to his appetite does so because a more mature taste has brought it into subordination The young man may cease to be idolizing sensual pleasure, but it is because the idol of wealth has gotten the ascendancy So the love of money can cast out the love of sloth However, Even the love of money can cease to have mastery over the heart if it is drawn into a world of ideology and politics, and he is now lorded over by a love of power and moral superiority. But there is not one of these transformations in which the heart is, check this out, is left without an object. The heart's desire for an ultimate object may be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is through the expulsive power of a new one. It is therefore only when admitted into the number of God's children through faith in Jesus Christ that the spirit of adoption is poured out on us It is then that the heart brought under the mastery of one great predominant and supreme affection is delivered from the tyranny of all its former desires and the only way that deliverance is possible. And this is why Paul says, people are lovers. We are what we love. There is no way to dispossess the affections of your heart towards something other than with something that you will love more we are people of desire people of affection which is why you can't as he said you can't just bend your will into being more true it is affection james k smith echoes this brilliantly as he is and does he says our identity is shaped by what we ultimately love or what we love as ultimate. Being a disciple of Jesus is not primarily a matter of getting the right ideas and doctrines and beliefs into our head in order to guarantee proper behavior. Rather, it is a matter of being the kind of person who loves rightly, who loves God and neighbor and is, listen, oriented to the world by the primacy of that love. James Gay Smith is saying, he's saying, in order for us to be moving in a direction, we must love in that direction. So the question that the Apostle Paul is asking is: what do you love? What is the ultimate affection of your what is at the core? What What has the most, the truest, the most longing devotion? And how are you orienting yourself, your life, your practices, your priorities, to things that fuel, that feel, that, that, that feed our very love for God, for neighbor. Because that is the antidote to all the other loves, to the love of money, to the love of self, to the love of pleasure. It is the love of God. So that's the first observation. If you want to to change, you must love something more. Secondly, what does this look like? What it says in verse 5 what does this wickedness look like in verse 5? It says, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. He says, avoid such people. Now, this is. An interesting delineation, right? He gives 19 descriptors of what wickedness looks like. And then in verse 5 he moves and says, hey listen, I just want to be clear that some of these some people will have the appearance of godliness but they're denying its power. It's not what we usually think of when we think about wickedness because Paul is reserving this not just for sin people, sinful people in general but he's talking about People who make religious declarations, but false, who are false in practice. Who have, as he says, the form of godliness, but deny its power. Folks who who go to church, who bow their heads when they pray, who, who sing the songs that we sing, who maybe even put cash in the box, but look holy and yet inwardly are empty or false. Precisely what Jesus complained about to the Pharisees, right? Those who were the super religious of the time. He said, listen, you, you wash the outside of the cup or the bowl, but inside, he says, you are full of greed and self-indulgence. Which is why Paul says to Timothy as a command, avoid these people. Avoid these people. And it seems relatively clear that it's not just avoid people who sin. Well, it can't be. First of all, Jesus was a friend of sinners and tax collectors, right? So it can't be that it's like, hey, listen, don't be around people who sin because otherwise y'all can't be in here. No, no, no. He's saying something very particular. He's saying, listen, there are people who agree with how the world works, but they put on a pious front, and in so doing, they twist the reality of truth and they invite others to do it as well. They put on a smile and call it Jesus, but in their lives in their devotion, in their behavior, in their practices. It's not devotion, it's destruction. And Paul's saying, that's something to be avoided because that will draw and pull you towards death. So that's what wickedness looks like. Paul reminds Timothy that there's another way. He says, listen, Timothy, you are a faithful follower. You followed, and now I call you, invite you to continue. You see it here in verse 10. He says, you, however, in contrast to the wickedness, you, however, have followed, and listen, he says, my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. And then Paul includes his persecutions. He says, there's both belief and practice. There's both teaching and conduct. Paul's way of life. What Paul's saying is, you know that for me they match. That that, that what I talk about, what am I teaching, matches the way I, I do my life, my, my conduct, the way in which I live in front of all oh, you have you have seen it. He lived what he taught. And he's saying, Timothy, you know this. You know this because what I taught got me dragged outside of the city walls in Lystra, where you're from, and I was stoned and left for dead in a gutter. So, so you know that this is not just lip service, this is practice. I hold to this to the point of, of persecution and even maybe death. And so he says, Yes, follow Timothy. What does a faithful servant look like? He follows the teaching and the practice, the truth and the action. But as for you, he says, he continues in verse 14, you followed, now continue. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. What you've heard from my life, from my faith, from my love, from my my steadfastness, from my patience, I, I bore witness through the way in which I lived. I bore witness to the gospel I proclaimed with the way that I lived. And so, Timothy, continue like that. Continue the way in which you've seen it from me. And some of what that looked like, what are some of these general terms of faithfulness and steadfastness and patience? Well, right right before this passage, in in 2 Timothy 2, Paul says, listen, Timothy, this is some of what it looks like. He says, listen, have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies. He says, listen, don't get embroiled in quarrels. You know that they breed quarrels, speculating about things that the scriptures don't talk about and arguing about things that are secondary and inconsequential. He says, and the Lord's servant, this is what it looks like, Timothy, the Lord's servant must be, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, like we saw in chapter two, verse two, patiently enduring evil, like taking the hits, correcting his opponents. yes, Disagreement is okay. But how? With gentleness. Now, I think there could be an entire sermon about what it looks like for Christians to behave, to disagree with gentleness. But quite a few blog posts that have been written to that effect. But Paul's wildly clear here. There is a way in which we move into the world that is neither with a baseball bat nor a megaphone nor with an online tirade, but that disagrees with gentleness as a mark of the faithful follower. So what are you following? Who are you following? Who are the people that, that, that their behavior and, and, their, and their words match, that, that speak the name of Jesus, not just with what they say, though they do say it, as well as with the way in which they live? And is that you? You? Paul's saying, continue like this. This is the way, the way free from wickedness and the way towards life. Paul's inviting us to live out of reality, both teaching the doctrine, but not less than that, but also in our way of life. And so you have these two pictures, right? You have this like, this just litany of what wickedness looks like. And then over here, you have this, this picture of a faithful servant who follows the teaching, who listens, who's, who's short to, who doesn't quarrel about ridiculous things. Instead, he's able to teach and is gentle and faithful, and loving. And it seems like, well, that's a standard picture, right? That seems like a standard picture. You got, you got, you know, be like this, don't be like this. It's a pretty straightforward picture of the sermon, but you know what's what's fascinating to me as as I was thinking through this sermon is is that I think for, for many of us we we look at this kind of these two lists, if you will, if you put the big you know list, the, the bad list, the good list over here, the bad list over here, and we we look at them and we go like, okay, well, well, like looking at all those words, like yeah, I'm not I'm not that. Like especially if you put them all together, it's like I don't know anybody like that. Like not here, you know. My mother-in-law sometimes, you know, but like no one really. But then you look over here and you're like, wow. Like 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 that. Like you match match. Like everything you say, you actually do. Like you you're, you have a faithfulness and a love and a, that that actually matches the reality of the gospel. Like that's kind of a lot. Like you un, unto like real loss unto unto potential death. That's a lot. You know what? I'm gonna find the middle ground being a moderate's a good thing, right? And so I'm just gonna like this middle lane, which is the, what I call the just okay, right? I'm, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not this because goodness me, right? That's not okay. But this is a lot to ask of, of anyone. Like that, that, maybe that was for like the hyper Christian Timothy. But there's no delineation We create our own narrow road and uh, there is no narrow road like that. The narrow road of Jesus looks like this over here. Which is why I think one of the most Shocking elements of the letters uh, to the churches in Revelation comes to the letter of Laodicea in Re- Revelation chapter three, when it says, he's talking to a church, an active, live church, just like us, not the, not the wicked." The Angel says, "I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot! So because you are lukewarm." neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. He's saying we we become blinded by lukewarmness as though it's a real road, as though it's a real way. Which is, is, I'm convinced why Paul puts in verse 12 as as clarifying, not just for Timothy, but for everyone. He makes this broad and, and frankly uncomfortable statement. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. By by default, what he's saying is that there is no just-okay lane. There just isn't such a thing. John Stott articulates this tension really well. He He says, those who are in Christ but not in the world are not persecuted because they do not come into contact and therefore into conflict with their potential persecutors. That makes sense. Uh, Those who are in the world, but are not in Christ, are also not persecuted because the world sees nothing in them to persecute. The former escape persecution by withdrawing from the world, the latter by assimilating to it. It is only for those who are both in the world and in Christ at the same time that persecution becomes inevitable. so in what ways have you and I, and I and and i mean you and me like me have i kind of crafted something down the middle Th- there are elements of that list of 19 things that any of us could look at and say yeah there's some there's some truth in that I maybe mean, not 100% but you know like lo- lovers of money lacking self control Lovers of self, you know, pride, arrogance—like those those things emerge—and and I think we could recognize them. We might look at them and say, like, no, though that that shows up sometimes, and have mercy on me, O oh Lord, right? But the question is, to to what degree do we find ourselves saying, like, this this is a this is okay, this is this is this is a version of the Christian life? And what what Paul's saying in his final words after having lived the entirety of his ministry life in in on the front lines of the gospel, he's like, it's not how it works. And have we convinced ourselves that it's okay? Well, how in the world? If we find ourselves going like, oh, it's okay, but this, okay, I'm trying to overcome some of this, but this feels like much, how do we become the kind of people where this is not like this where truth is worked out in our lives how do we become the kind of people and how do we become near the kind of people where that's true well paul says that there's really this is accomplished through the threefold effect of god's word not exclusively but here he points to the threefold effect of god's word and the first is that's the word's effect in us he says, "Do you want to? You want to be someone who who lives like this, whose heart is disposed this way, not comfortable, some some kind of make believe, not 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 struck in the middle of wickedness? Then the words, the words has to have effect in us, in the privacy of our hearts." And he says, "It does." Verse sixteen, famous passage, famous verse. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, that is, proficient, capable, able to meet the demands of life, equipped for every good work. Paul's saying is, listen, the word, it instructs us The Word of God, it trains us, it hones us, it it points us to the areas that are misaligned by the Spirit. The Word does it in us, through the Spirit. It's its purpose. This is why John Mark Comer says in his book, he says, Doctrine does matter very much. But not to pass the test or get into heaven. It matters because we become more like our vision of God. The goal of reading scripture is not, understand, it's not information, but spiritual formation to take on the mind of Christ. And so the word, the word of God, the scriptures are capable of shaping and equipping us to be able to be kind of people who are useful for the kingdom to the kingdom in our work and in our relationships and the way we think and the way that we act how by bringing us face to face with reality with what really is what is true about us graciously but really really honestly this is why the author of hebrew of hebrews gets about as vivid and graphic about what the Word of God does in chapter 4, verse 12. He says, for the Word of God is living and active, not passive and asleep. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, what the Word of God does is it cuts straight down into the center of our being. It in the best possible way, it flays open our hearts to reveal reality, to reveal and show what is misaligned, to reveal and show also what is aligned, what is true and good. It goes all the way in. It's made to do that. Cuts deeply into our private life and reveals what's true about us and about God. If you remember a year and a half ago or so, about a year ago, I guess, we, uh, we spent a year reading uh, through the Bible together. And one of the reasons why is we wanted to be the kind of people who were grounded in God's word. And this week, I, I pulled out this kind of the introduction paragraphs that we gave to you all the way at the beginning, I guess that was two years ago now, saying, okay, so why are we doing this? And what does this look like? And as I read this, I thought, oh yeah, this is what we were doing together. I was talking about the scripture. We said, this book, and this is my version of quoting myself, this book, <laughs> this, I didn't bring my glasses, and now this is very small. All right. This book can and will turn your life upside down if you choose to seek God in it. It will challenge your perceptions of self, the ways you relate to others, what you do with, with what you like and what you don't like, and how you view everything you own. In the stories of the Bible, you see yourself both the ugly and the redemption that can be. If you will let it, the scriptures will do its work in you over time. That's what Paul's saying here. He says it does a work in us. It affects us. It changes us by the Spirit. So the word, the word affects us from within, but, but it goes beyond that. The word affects us by affecting it through us in public. So moving to 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul shifts and he says, listen, it's not just the reality of what the scripture is for to reprove, to, to correct, to train, to make you the kind of person who can, who can live out this reality. It's, it's also something that's It's become through you. He says in verse one, I charge you in the presence of God. Uh, This is also known as a freighted statement before I'm about to invite you into something. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. That's all the words, okay? That's all the freight. By this I charge you. And what does he say? He says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, if you went to Dallas Theological Seminary, you know that, you know, preach the word is actually, I think, tattooed on you somewhere. I think it's one of the rules. That's my shot at a couple of Dallas Theological people in the room. Um, But preach the word, which is the motto of Dallas Theological Seminary, is not exclusively for Timothy and preachers. Is it for them? Absolutely it is. Paul's invitation here is to say that the truth and the transforming reality of the gospel that you have not just heard, that you're not just learning to obey in your interior world, that you're not just learning to to love, is something that also must be spoken from you. It must come out of you. That's not just Timothy, that's us. And you notice the correlation in the words? We talked about the all scriptures God breathed, right? Useful for correction, reproof, training in righteousness. Do you notice the correlation between the words of, he says, oh yeah, th- those same things, now say them out loud and make them real for other people. Invite people into the reality of that. There's a public implication to the gospel. That's true towards fellow believers, towards one another, that, that, we would, that we would talk about the things of God, that we would remind each other when we're in the pit or we're on the mountaintop of the realities and the beauties of God. That's one of the reasons why we live in community, to do just that, with the Word. Not, not firing off some little Bible verse that we read, but, but actually saying, hey, here's why this matters to me and why it may matter to you today. We rehearse the gospel by rehearsing the Word and sometimes some people, some of us need—we need, we need a, a mental argument on the scriptures, and some of us need a re, tangible rebuke by the scriptures. And other words, of us just need a word of encouragement from the scriptures. So it's towards believers, but also, of course, it's towards those who are not believing yet. And, and this is probably where point one and point two kind of collide. Because I think most of you were probably like, okay, yes, I agree. The scripture, breathed out by God, should affect me. It should change my interior world. I should be someone who's becoming more free, more alive, who's, who's resembling the opposite of the characteristics of the wicked and more of the beauty and the power and the joy that comes in what it means to be a servant of the Lord. Yes, Matt, I want that to be true. Lord, Holy Spirit, make it so. Amen. And then, and then we just slide into the next chapter, and the very scripture that we were just talking about is saying, hey, by the way, you can't stay quiet. And by the way, that's uncomfortable for me. Uh, yesterday, Becky and I were on a walk in our neighborhood. It's a new neighborhood, so we have new people moving in. We haven't met a bunch of people yet. And, and we, we, uh, one of the, the, the neighbors there, his name is Matt. That's why I remember his name, because, you know... Uh, <laughs> And uh, we 're talking, and, and we're just talking about you know, things that neighbors talk about, like lawns and HOAs, yeah, um, but at one point he goes, "Hey, remind me, aren't you like like a pastor or something? Which is always a setup, by the way. <clears throat> and I 'm like, "Yes." and uh, he says, "Well, you know the the, the, um, the the priest at the church we go to like, he's in the in the military reserve i didn 't know if you were doing that too, and I was like, "Oh no, no i don't you know i just just do it here, you know, um, and he goes, and so um, he goes, but, you know, by the way, my, he says, but my wife, you know, she kind of, I go with because of her, and he goes, the classic, no offense, <laughs> which I'm not even sure what you're supposed to do with that at that point, like offense taken, you know, like, I don't know, but, you know, with gentleness, um, and, uh, but you know what happens to me immediately, I'm like, okay, cool. You are clearly not interested in this conversation. You know, I mean, you, know you bring up the military thing, but not interested. And so I'm like, I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I totally understand. And then Becky is right next to me. She goes, well, what church do you go to? Well, this guy's not interested at all in having a spiritual conversation, I promise you. But my, like, little evangelist wife over here is like, tell <laughs> me about it. I'm like, I just want to keep walking. Can we keep walking? Um, I literally was like, whoa, whoa, he made it clear. I think we tried, you know? (laughs) I mean, I said something, I believe, somewhere. (laughs) Paul looks at Timothy and says, do the work of an evangelist. Now, some people say it's because Timothy had the gift of evangelism, but, but there's no indication necessarily of that by the way it's the work of an evangelist it's like do the work of someone who's going to proclaim the thing that is true in you and i think this is maybe the way in which god's trying to challenge my soul because i walked away from that and i was i was wishing becky hadn't pressed further you know what the word did i got double hit Like I want to become the kind of man who not only lives out the things that he says and believes, yes, but also lives out the things that he says and believes, like this. That we are to be a people who talk about the Jesus that we love. There was a 19, uh, 2019 survey by, uh, by Barna Research, and... Um, it found that, and I'm not picking on millennials, but this is one of the recent pieces. says said 47% of practicing Christian millennials, which is about over 50% of our church here, agree at least somewhat that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share that same faith. So these, this is committed Christians. Almost half of practicing Christian millennials believe that evangelism is wrong. Now... This is not a pointing at millennials. Do you know why millennials think that? It's what they've witnessed from, the, from Xers and from boomers. Now, I, I, there's no Z, right? I don't have, we don't have Z in here, but I guarantee you it's, it's at least that. And it's largely because of the growing belief that disagreement means judgment. And if, if I don't agree with you, that I'm, that I'm judging you. And there was, a, there was an old adage that I heard years ago, which I think is really funny, and you may not. <laughs> it said, you know, are you, this is, you know, talking about living the Christian life, are you smoking what you're selling, okay? It's sticky, that's why I like it. Are you smoking what you're selling? You're talking about Jesus, but are you living it? That's the implication. And honestly, I think the more appropriate thing today is like, are you selling what you're smoking? Like, are you giving away the thing that we say is at the center, the thing that we say we love most? And this is the power of giving it away. Uh, David Kinneman, who's from Barna Research, says this. He says, as much as ever, evangelism isn't just about saving the unsaved, though, of course, it is but reminding ourselves that this stuff matters, that the Bible is trustworthy and that Jesus changes everything. Which leads us to the final final effect of the word, when it changes and transforms us internally, yes. It changes people through us when we, we become the kind of people who proclaim this good news. But it changes everything. The word's the word's power to us. The scriptures point us to Jesus and to the heart of God for his people because it comes from him. All scripture is breathed out by God. Not contrived, not thought about, not some accumulation of Philosophies and thoughts, it is breathed by God, which is why Paul, in the verse before that, says, Timothy, you remember how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred scriptures, the, the Word, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's through faith in Christ Jesus, it's Him. The scriptures are able to make you wise for how to handle and orient your entire life through faith in who Jesus is. All scriptures originated in the mind of God and are communicated through the mouth of the Father by the Spirit, through his word, the Spirit of God, the very breath of God, which is why I loved how Larry Crabb, when he did his, like, kind of... um, Commentaries on a commentary. His, his work through the entire, uh, entirety of the scripture, he called it the 66 Love Letters. Eh, maybe there's a better title, a better way to write a book, whatever. The point is, is this. To the degree that we understand that the scriptures are given to us by a father who loves his children, by a king who loves his people, by a God who wants us to know him and see him and experience him, that our affections may be turned to him. Not just our behavior, but our fundamental orientation of life moved towards him. We will not love him. The scripture invites, scriptures invites us, invites me to reorder my love. It invites me to reorder my love to him by reminding me of the fact that he loved me. It reorients my affections by showing me how lovely and how, how beautiful, how majestic, how how gracious, how mighty and how faithful He is. And that He does so most clearly through Jesus Christ, who is the Word made flesh. We are changed when we love God who gives us his breath through his word. A couple weeks ago, I was driving in and uh, I'm reading through the Bible uh, with the New Living Translation, which is my first time using that. There was a time in which I was so pious and I wouldn't allow such secondary translations to cross over my eyes, but uh, you know, I'm freer now. And I'm in my car, I'm listening to it, which it does count, if you're wondering. Um, (laughs) And Psalm 90 comes on. The first verse of Psalm 90 in the New Living says, Lord, through all the generations, you have been our home. I'm on 140 there. And just tears start streaming down my eyes like, Lord, you've you've been my home. Through all my generations, all my seasons, all the things that have come, all the things I had no idea about, you've been my home. And the Lord, through Psalm 80, through Psalm 90, even in the new living, he, he pierced my heart. He reminded me of what's true about him, of what's true about me. And he makes me want to be more holy. I want to talk about that, God. I want to share who he is. I want to become bolder and freer about giving him away, even to my neighbor, because of who he is, because it is his love breathed out from him. That's what the word is. That's what frees us from wickedness. That's what gets us out of okayness and invites us into what it means to be a servant of the Lord. That's the avenue. It's not new. I'm inviting you to be with the Lord in his word. If you've been at church for five seconds, that should have been a thing that's happened. So I'm inviting you again. Let God meet you in Psalm 90 and in Jeremiah and in Matthew and in Revelation. Let him surprise you with his grace and who he is, his beauty. And stir up that love that will will topple anything, anything in your heart, which is what this meal is supposed to do. It's supposed to be this like a taste that says, I am worthy of your love. And the way you know it is because I loved you like this. This is what the pages of scripture point us to. And the one we get to remember, the one who would give everything for us, for our sake, for his glory. And so we're gonna come, we're gonna take this meal together and remember that. Asking the Father, stir up my love for you. Let's pray. Father, oh, how we love you. We don't love you perfectly, we know that, but we want to love you more. We want to know you more, we want to be freer and more alive in you. So as we come to this table right now, we ask, Lord, that that you would meet us and that you would stir up, stoke the flame, renew, refresh the reality of the beauty of Jesus Christ, which is the conduit to that kind of centered love. Help us to see you and to delight in you and to find rest and refuge and boldness and courage in you. We love you. You are worthy of all praise and all honor. Be glorified, we pray in us. Amen. Well, if you belong to Jesus, this meal is for you. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ.